Chapter 2. The Sale of a Slave On the shadowed side of one of the mud-brick buildings that edged Memphis' thriving marketplace, Sheftu stood quietly with folded arms. His position commanded a good view of the entire area. Merchants and bakers' stalls, shops of silver workers, weavers, glass blowers, and makers of sandals. Here a potter spun his wheel and shaped the clay, chanting supplications to Hanum, ram-headed deity of all potters, who had once shaped man himself on a divine wheel. There, in a shady corner, a barber plied his trade, jostling by roving fishmongers. The square was thronged with shoppers, the white-clad, copper-skinned, black-wigged inhabitants of Memphis, with their baskets and their squabbling voices and their long, painted eyes. They took no notice whatever of Sheftu, who ordinary, whose ordinary white shanty and headcloth made him inconspicuous, and whose immobility made him seem merely part of the shadow in which he stood. Outwardly casual, he was inwardly as alert as a cat at a mouse hole. His eyes, the only part of him that moved, flashed restlessly over the crowd, searching, probing, overlooking nothing. He had been waiting a long time. Presently, his attention was drawn to a little commotion in a far corner of the square. A group of soldiers, pushing officiously through the crowd, had shoved a ragged girl aside against a passing litter so that she collided with one of the Nubian bearers. He, in turn, lost his balance, staggered, and almost dropped his corner of the litter, whereupon the bejeweled great lady inside thrust her head between the curtains and began to scold ferociously. "'Be gone, rabble!' shouted the servant in attendance beyond the litter. He sprang forward, yelling imprecations, and began to lay about him with his stick, his blows falling impartially upon the bearer and the unfortunate girl, who screamed back at him with equal fury in both Egyptian and Babylonian. Suddenly, she dodged out of his reach, ducked with remarkable agility between the legs of an ass and vanished into the crowd. An instant later, however, she reappeared some distance behind the litter, strutting along in the wake of the self-important attendant in a perfect imitation of his pompous swagger. The bystanders roared and slapped their thighs. Sheftu was grinning, too. He was sorry when, with a final mocking imprudence, the girl melted once more into the crowd. Her lithe image still in his mind, Sheftu returned to his vigilant scanning of the marketplace. The messenger was late. A glance at the sun told him he dared not wait much longer, that if the compromise signal did not come soon, it would never come, and all his arrangements and pleas of yesterday had failed. He stirred restlessly in the shadowed corner and gnawed his lip. Suddenly, he caught sight of the girl again. This time, she was quite near him, strolling with apparent aimlessness among the stalls. She stopped to watch a potter at work, and Sheftu studied her cautiously, unable to fit her into any of the usual categories. Her face was mobile, alert, and vivid, broad across the cheekbones, smudged with dirt, but 
it was also set with eyes as blue as the noon sky, a rare sight in Egypt. She was far too ragged to be the daughter of even the poorest merchant. Yet she must have some education, for she had spoken Babylonian, and her slim, wild grace had nothing whatever in common with the stunted brutishness of serfs or porters. What was she? She wandered a few steps further, and Shefti's eyes followed her. Had he not been watching closely, he would never have seen the swift glance she threw into a side street, where a baker's apprentice was hurrying along, balancing his great flat basket of breadstuffs on his head, waving a palm branch over them to keep off the crows. Tongue-in-cheek, Sheftu continued to watch. He was not surprised when the girl stepped innocently into the street at the precise moment that the baker's apprentice darted around the corner of the stall. There was a shout, the inevitable sharp collision, and bread, basket, palm leaf scattered in all directions. Instantly, the girl was all remorse. She was everywhere at once, snatching up the loaves and dusting them. Soothing the apprentice with smiles and sympathy, they caused his frown to give way to a flattered smirk. Only Sheftu, shaking with a silent merriment, observed the good half-dozen honey cakes that found their way into her sash instead of the basket. His enjoyment increased as she began to nibble one absently under the baker's very nose, chattering to him meanwhile. It passed all bounds when she actually took another from her sash, offered it prettily to the bedazzled youth, and strolled off down the street, leaving him blushing and gaping happily after her. By Amen, thought Chef too, nearly choking with laughter. There is as witty a piece of deviltry as I've ever seen. What a girl this is. Suddenly he stiffened and the girl vanished from his mind as if she had never been there. There, across the marketplace, lowering his earthen jar into the public well, was a Nubian in a red headcloth. Sheftu waited tensely as the jar went down once, twice, and after a long pause, a third time. It was the signal. With a long sigh of relief, he stepped at last out of his shadow corner, the Nubian shouldered his water jar and departed. Sheftu, mingling inconspicuously with the crowd, followed in the same general direction, keeping the red head cloth always in sight. Once out of the marketplace, the black man moved swiftly through a maze of alleys and side streets. Sheftu followed at a discreet distance. Presently, the guide vanished abruptly into a doorway. There was a porter coming toward Sheftu down the street. Behind, he could hear other footsteps and quarreling voices. Continuing his same unhurried stride, he passed the doorway without a glance, strolling on until the porter had disappeared around a corner and the quarrelers were abreast of him. He glanced at them casually as they passed and was surprised to see the same girl whose antics had amused him in the square. She was being dragged along roughly by a scowling man with a cruel face who wore gold armbands and appeared to be a person of some consequence. It was he who was doing most of the talking. He muttered under his breath, exploding now and then into angry curses and giving another jerk on the girl's arm. 
She responded sometimes with a protest or a whispered Babylonian phrase, but for the most part accepted the abuse passively, or so Shefty thought until she flashed a look in his direction and he saw her eyes blazing like blue jewels in her tanned face. There was no submission there, and not a trace of fear, only fury. But Sheftu realized, with a sudden shock, that she was a slave. She must be. Otherwise, angry as she was, she would openly rebel against this man, who was evidently her master. Now the contradictions in her appearance were no longer baffling. Probably, she had been well-born, stolen as a child from her family, sold and resold, until there was no one left who could possibly know who she had once been. As the two disappeared into a side street, Sheftu turned back toward the doorway, feeling spiritless and depressed. It was a crass and ugly world where such a girl could be kept a slave. So preoccupied was he with this notion that only habit caused him to conceal his face from the other figure who appeared at the moment on the street. A man swathed from ear to ear in a woolen cloak, though it was warm noonday. This man strode along in the direction the girl and her master had taken, and like them, turned the corner. It was destiny that passed, but Sheftu could not know that. He only knew that the street was now empty, and he walked away swiftly, appearing towards the doorway through which the Nubian had disappeared. Two streets away, the girl and her master were nearing home. Goat! Barbarian! Swineherd! raged Mara under her breath in Babylonian. She far preferred to rage in Egyptian since its heavy guttural lent, gutturals lent themselves perfectly to invective, but she was too wise to indulge her preference at the moment. With her arm in her master's harsh grip and her other hand reaching for his stick, she confined herself to a tongue he did not know. Even so, it was satisfying, since she knew it infuriated Sasha to be reminded that his slave was better educated than himself. Son of three pigs, know nothing, she spat at him. Cease the babble, he roared. They had reached the front courtyard of his house, and he gave her a fling that sent her staggering across the paving to land painfully upon the broad stone steps. Crocodile, she added. Stop it, I say. Zasha had his stick out of his belt now. Unhappy day that I bought you, miserable one. Sister of the serpent you are, always sneaking away from your work to go mischief-making in the square. What have you stolen today? Well, what? <clears throat> Bread, Mara answered him. Feed your slaves like humans instead of dogs and they'll not steal. Silence, bellowed Zasha. He strode across the court, and the stick whistled across her bare shoulders. Hold that tongue of yours, girl, or I'll have it out. Now, what else? Bread and what else? Not else. The stick whistled again. The truth, Zasha demanded. It is the truth. I took only a loaf and two from my fat baker, who had more than he needed. Pah, you lie. Sasha raised the stick again, and she decided to cringe, 
knowing that as long as she defied him, he would continue to beat her. When she shrank against the column, he grinned. What, do you fear me then? Mara said nothing. Immediately, the stick came down with savage force. Hi, you shall fear me. Though I wear my arm out teaching you. <clears throat> All at once, he drew back, gulping. Turn away your eyes, you keft maiden. Look away, I say. His free hand groped for the amulet he wore at his throat, and a mocking smile deepened the corner of Mara's mouth. She knew what the amulet was. An ozate, a little enameled model of the sacred Eye of Horus. He had got it from a magician soon after he had bought her from her former master. Zasha was afraid of her blue eyes. What? Do you fear me? She could not help taunting. She leaned forward, fastening her eyes upon him, and widened them deliberately. When he stumbled back another pace, she laughed aloud. Then he was upon her again, his blows falling as fast as his curses, his voice shaking with rage while she wrapped her arms about her head and endured the punishment. Both were too absorbed to notice the stranger, still wrapped from head to toe in his woolen cloak, who had that moment entered the courtyard. He stopped just inside the gate, watching the scene impassively a moment, then strode forward and dropped a heavy hand upon Zasha's shoulder, whirling him halfway around. Let be he ordered. Put away your stick. Sasha gasped and blinked. By Amen, he puffed. Who are you to walk into my own courtyard and tell me? Be quiet, fool. I'm buying the slave of you. How much do you want? The jewel trader gaped. Then he straightened, massaging his hands craftily. She's a valuable property, he grunted. I've said not about selling. What makes you think I'd part with a girl like this? Look at her. Young, strong, quick as a cat. She's no common drudge, but can read and write, and she speaks Babylonian as well as our own tongue. Moreover, she eats little and is docile as a... Stand up, you! He hissed angrily at Mara. Smile! Mara stayed where she was, merely regarding him scornfully. The stranger's laugh was brief and not altogether amused. Yes, I see how docile she is. Come, he's this chatter fellow. Name your price, or you'll have to take what you get. Not so fast, retorted Zasha. Who are you? I'll not sell until I know with whom I'm doing business. I'll not sell it all unless I get my price. The stranger growled impatiently, brushed past the bridled jewel merchant and leaned down, seized Mara's wrist and pulled her to her feet. You'll sell right enough. I'm here to buy a clever slave, and this is the one I want. Name your price, or I'll simply take her. In whose name? shouted Zasha. In the queen's name. The stranger reached inside his cloak 
and brought out a purse, which he flung contemptuously at Zasha's feet. Then he led Mara out of the courtyard without another word, leaving the merchant white-faced and staring behind him. The whole thing had happened so fast that Mara felt giddy. In astonished silence, she followed her new owner through the crooked streets, stealing curious glances at what she could see of his face. But he was an eye, a jutting nose, and a length of white wool, nothing more. She shrugged and gave it up. No doubt he would show himself in time. Meanwhile, she felt the glorious lightness grow within her at the thought. Meanwhile, she was rid of Zasha. Of all the masters she had had, he was the worst. Perhaps this new one would feed her. Her hand went to her sash, where a few of the honey cakes were still tucked away safe. She frowned. She had meant to give one to Teta, poor soul, who would now have to iron those hateful shenties still lying neglected in their basket. It was too bad. She had never resented Teta's scolding, knowing that most of her ill tempers steamed from hunger. No matter, Mara thought, and her face cleared. Teta is gone from your life, as others have come and gone, and their fate is no concern of yours. Look after yourself, my girl. Nobody else will. After some minutes of walking, they came to an inn surrounded by a high, mud-brick wall. The man turned through the gate, ignored the lower gate entrance, and led the way up a flight of stairs set against the outside of the building. When they reached the room at the top, he secured the door and turned to face Mara, throwing off his cloak at last. She had to make an effort to conceal her surprise. He was dressed in the finest linen, with armbands of chased gold and a broad, jeweled collar of remarkable beauty. A man of great wealth. But his face filled her with misgivings. It was cold and stony as the Sphinx itself. Your name, girl? Mara, daughter of nobody and his wife, nothing. His granite face showed no flicker of expression, but his voice grew icy. Take care. Wit becomes imprudence in a slave's mouth. He sat down on the room's one chair and regarded her impassively. I watched you in the marketplace. You are both daring and unscrupulous, and you think fast. I've been looking for a person with those particular characteristics. Also, I noticed you speak Babylonian. I presume your command of the language goes somewhat beyond mere invective? I speak the tongue well, murmured the girl. This conversation astonished her even more than the suddenness of her sail. She could not imagine its purpose. Good. Now look, you. I have bought you for no ordinary purpose, as you may be guessing. I have a very special duty for you, but, he leaned forward to emphasize his words, it is so dangerous, a duty, that I will give you free choice whether or not you will attempt it. If your choice be nay, you have only to say so, and I will sell you at once to some other master. I need, I've no need for more household slaves. And if my choice be I? 
and may bring your sudden death or worse. But you will find the danger has its compensations. So long as you obey my orders, you will be quite free from the usual slave's life. And if you carry them out successfully, I will free you altogether. Mara gripped the edge of the table that separated them. There was no hesitation in her mind, but it took a moment to control the wild excitement that filled her. Aye, my choice is aye, she whispered. Think well, you may be choosing destruction. No matter, I would rather be dead than a slave. He gave a faint smile. So I thought. Now listen closely. One reason I picked you is that you have the appearance of a girl of the upper classes, where you would have if your hair were clipped and dressed and your rags exchanged for decent clothes. If these things were done, do you think you could live, live up to your fine garments? Why, yes, I suppose. I could act the part of a human being. He chose to ignore the sarcasm. So be it. As you heard, I bought you in the queen's name. You will serve the queen as well as myself, though no one will know this. No one will realize you are a purchased slave at all. For you will masquerade as a free maiden, the daughter of a priest of Abydos, now dead. If anyone should find out differently, you will die at once. Do you understand thus far? Mara tingled with fresh astonishment. His eyes were cold, his mouth implacable. He meant exactly what he said. I understand, she said slowly. What service am I to do? A princess of Canaan, one Inani, is on her way to Thebes at this moment to become the wife of the young pretender Thutmose. She has her own train of servants and waiting women, but she will need an interpreter. The man leaned forward, jabbing his finger at Mara. You are to be that interpreter. You will go at once to the city of Abydos, where the princess is spending a week in the usual ceremonies of purification. You will seek out an Egyptian called Sa'ankwen, who is in charge of the ships, and give him this. He drew from his girdle a tiny green scarab inscribed with the name of Hatshepsut. Mara took it in a hand, cold with excitement. So far, this man had not really told her anything. What was behind all these strange instructions? The clothes, the hair, she murmured. Sa'ankwen will arrange, will arrange all that for you, returned her master, gesturing impatiently. When you leave Abydos, attached as interpreter to Inani's train, you will be suitably adorned and entirely above suspicion of any kind. Now, he paused, fixing her with narrowed eyes, and Mara stiffened. Once in Thebes, the man went on softly, you will accompany the princess to her quarters in the palace and remain there for an indefinite period. You will be present at all her interviews with the king, naturally, since she does not speak a word of our language, and he will not deign to speak hers. Keep your ears open. Listen to whatever goes on between the king and those around him. 
his servants, his scribes, his musicians. I want to know which of these people carries his orders to others outside the palace walls. Somehow, he is sending and receiving messages. I want to know how. Mara stared at him, breathing hard. In short, I am a spy. Exactly. If you are as clever as I think you are, you should have no trouble obtaining this information. If you succeed, you will not be dissatisfied with your reward. But if you fail, whether by accident or design, he did not finish the sentence. He did not need to. He was smiling in a way that sent a little trickle of fear down Mara's spine. She took a deep breath. How am I to report to you? Leave that to me. Is it permitted to know your name? It is not. The less you know, the less you will be tempted to let your wits run away with you. The man stood up, taking a heavy gold chain from his neck. Take this. It will pay your passage to Abydos. Get on the boat that leaves next. Again, the thin smile. Remember, I am no stupid baker's apprentice. Should the chain and you disappear somehow between here and the wharfs, it would be regrettable. Do we understand each other? Perfectly, said Mara. Then go. Enjoy your freedom and your fine clothes and your acquaintance with royalty while you can. It may not last long. He leaned back gesturing toward the door, and Mara realized that she was dismissed. She was free, free to walk out that door, make her way unchallenged to the wharf, and set sail for Abydos, Thebes, adventure. No more rags, no more beatings or loaf snatching, no more hunger. Instead, there would be luxury and royal intrigue and excitement, and once she was in the palace, Whatever this man's threats might be, there would be endless opportunities for a girl who knew how to use her wits. The future opened up before her in a vista radiant with possibilities, each more entrancing than the last. Without knowing it, she laughed aloud for joy. The man's dry voice rasped suddenly across her daydreams. Be careful, Mara. You are still a slave. She shrugged and grinned. I'll try to remember. I will be there to remind you. He remarked acidly. He jerked his head toward the door, and this time she went, without even looking back. <laughs>